promises are true. And so let's, let's jump into the genealogy. I'm just going to kind of walk you through some stories real quick. It's a good time to take notes because if you didn't know about some of these guys, you're about to learn. <coughs> Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Not your normal Christmas story, right? Right off the bat. We're just already like we're bored with that. I'm already bored with that. Just reading it, knowing we're not, feel like we're getting anywhere. But it's important because we're drawing the line to David. God has promised David that he would raise up a son that would come from the house of David. And we're going to come back to that. But we start off with these big names, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. These are names we know. They are the founders of our faith. And so often in the Old Testament, God is referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That becomes like one of the names of God. And these three are the pillars of faith, right? I mean, when they become the name of God, I would say they're pretty important. Matter of fact, have you ever thought about this? Is there someone in your family uh, that you can point to in your own genealogy that becomes the foundation of your faith? And if you say no, then maybe you're it. Maybe you're it. Something to chew on that this morning. If you say no, if you can't think of anybody in your family that you look up to that's a pillar of faith towards Jesus Christ, maybe you're going to be the first. And I'm going to show you this morning through the genealogy and through some of this how you will be that first. And that things can change. From one generation to another, things can change. There's always hope. The lives of these three men are told in the book of Genesis. And to say they're extraordinary is really not doing anything justice there. Abraham's relationship with God is rare, not only in the Old Testament standards, but even in New Testament standards as well. God pretty much spoke to him on this regular uh, basis. He, he walked with God. I mean, he really walked with God. Whatever God said do, he did. You know the stories of Abraham. Kill your son. Okay. Wait, I better hold him back because he's going to do it. Yeah, blind obedience. Abraham. I mean, who, com who competes with that? Who competes with blind obedience like that? Uh, three, you know, you, you keep moving on and you move on to Isaac. And not a lot is really said about Isaac. But can I tell you something? There's nothing wrong with having a quiet life that's, that's been in obedience to God. You know why there's nothing, nothing said about Isaac? Because he really didn't do a lot of bad things. You ever notice the Bible really records the bad things? Like really goes after it, right? And, and, and in profound moments of faith, we see those things too. But we see Isaac who led this pretty much upright life. And if he's guilty of anything, he's guilty to be a gullible of loving his children too much. And maybe, maybe, maybe in a way that wasn't healthy. But I mean, like, it's hard to really find anything bad about Isaac. And then you move in and you get Jacob. Three generations in, we're at Jacob. Jacob's also called the great deceiver in the Bible. All right? He's known for having tricked his father and his and brother in gaining the blessing from Isaac. Jacob, through hardship, continues to walk in the Lord. But even after he wrestles with the Lord, remember he has to go back and face Esau. He's not got the best of life either. Tends to spoil kids. Tends to love the youngest more than he loves the rest of them. Remember, you know the stories. Right? From Jacob, we get Judah. It's one of his children. And here things get a bit ugly, and if you don't know the Bible, I'm telling you right now, here's where they get the idea for soap operas. This is where it comes from. 
Judah was the ringleader that decided it was better to not kill Joseph because there's no profit in it. So they sold their youngest brother into slavery instead. By the way, proof that I'm not the worst brother ever. All right? Despite what my brothers have told me at a young age, I am not the worst brother ever. I never sold them into slavery. Amen? There we go. I have vindicated. Judah goes on to become a father of three boys. Now listen, his two oldest were wicked. They eventually died married to the same woman. True story. Eventually, Judah's wife dies, and he ends up sleeping with his oldest son's wife, who dresses up like a prostitute to seduce him. I ain't making this up. All right? Listen, when Jesus, they're pulling out the stories. Oh, Jesus, while you're born here, let me tell you about your family history. This is, uh, all right? You, you think your family, like my family has baggage. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It, this is the Bible. It's full of stuff like this. Let's keep pushing. Matthew 1, 4 and 6. Now we're going to get some names, right? Ram, the father of Abinadab. Abinadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, who, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. If you've never read the story of Ruth in the Bible... I, want you, I encourage you to go read it. It's great. It's a great story. It's a huge love story between two different people. Ruth was this Moabite, and Boaz was a Jew. And Jews were not allowed to marry internationally. It was against the law, actually, the, the Mosaic law, God's law, because the fear was when you married outside your culture, if you married unequally yoked, you ended up taking the gods upon the other people you married into, right? A lot of us know this idea, the same idea that, you know, you, you, you can't really... Uh, uh, when you have a married couple, they both end up a lot like each other. The longer they're with each other, the more they accept things of each other, the past of each other, things like that, right? So the, the concern of God in the law was to make sure that you stayed under God's provision, God's house, God's name, and by doing so, being raised up by people who were also raised up under the same thing. There's a great fear in that area, and the, and the law was very specific so they wouldn't fall away in these areas. So they were not allowed to marry internationally. You couldn't just go after someone. But this story is different because Ruth's passion leads her into a, a significant life change. She calls Jehovah her God, and she gains this new life that she thought she would never have. Some of man's telling it's a good story. Now, that would seem like a crazy story for back in the day. It's not so crazy now, but I, in the Bible, at that stage, it's a very bold story. It's, 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 it's almost like racially mixed story. This, 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 in, a, in, a, in a time of segregation, you have this racially mixed couple. Very, very different type story. Uh, and and that, that would sound crazy if it wasn't for the fact uh, that, that your mom's Rahab. Which, by the way, if, if uh, some of you will remember Rahab, uh, she's the prostitute that helped Joshua spies. Yeah, that's also in the DNA of Jesus. Yeah. I mean, this is the bloodline, right? This is the family history of Jesus. We're not talking about anybody. We're talking about the somebody. The somebody. We celebrate this birth every year. This is his family. His family. Now, I'm going to make a point at the end why I keep bringing all that up. But let's move on. Boaz and Ruth are the grandparents of Jesse, who is the father of David. Everyone knows David. Maybe we know him as King David, the man that captures God's heart in such a way that he, he basically 
ensures that this line will come from him, that the Son of God will be born through the line of David. But if we're, we, it's too easy to get caught up in this idea and the grandeur of David, this king, and who's this greatest warrior probably on the face of the planet. Uh, uh, if it weren't for the fact that you, you notice, um, you know, he, he, to have Bathsheba, he killed a man. He was a murderer and an adulterer. Uh, and the irony in all these things, Uriah, I, I'd love to do studies on Uriah, and there's not much there, but you know he must have been a great man, and you know God hated that which happened. And God made sure, because what did we just read in Matthew? That David married Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Well, wait a minute, isn't Uriah dead? How come in Matthew, all those years later, Uriah's name still comes up? You ever notice how God just don't let you off the hook sometimes? I mean, David's long since passed dead, but man, there it is. There it is. So from David to Solomon, the bloodline, the DNA continues to thicken. We look at verse 7. It says, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Now, here's some names that are definitely unfamiliar. Uh, unless you've read a lot of the Kings or the Chronicles. Uh, um, however, uh, here's a little bit about some of these young men. Rehoboam was an arrogant man. He was the son of Solomon. Come on, my dad's like the smartest guy around. What are you going to do about it? I mean, that's, that's, he was arrogant. He knew what line he came from. I'm, not, I'm from the line of David. My dad's like the smartest guy ever. He has the biggest king ever. I mean, this is a spoiled rich kid, right? Son of Solomon, all this wisdom that Solomon had apparently did not rub off on him. His ignorance and evil counsel eventually splits the kingdom of Israel into two. Remember, we have Israel and now we have Judah. But in gaining power, he abandoned the Lord for prosperity. And eventually died, and they left his kingdom to Abijah. Now, Abijah was not like his father. He was an on-fire, God-loving man. His heart burned passionately for the things of God, and he united the kingdoms back thanks to a victory in battle. And if you read about him, it's pretty neat. He actually had about 400,000 men, but he was surrounded by 800,000. And, and I kind of love the whole scenario. If you ever get a chance to read about it, you should. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 13, where he steps out and he goes, uh, listen to me, king of Judah. Listen to me as I'm about to tell you what's really about to happen. And he stands up there and he acts all bold and he says, listen, you have left your God. You have left our this God who has made you, created you. He left the kingdoms to the line of David. Why are you? I mean, he goes off on this huge speech. Now, listen, here's what the evil king does. Because he thinks, oh, I'm smarter than this guy. I'm going to let this guy monologue. You know how like bad guys sometimes do while the good guys are trying to get out of something, you know? He lets him monologue. For so, but this monologue is this prayer to God, really. Repent and return is what he's trying to tell this king. Repent and turn. Nobody wants to kill each other. These are our kinsmen. But in the meantime, the other king sees this as an opportunity. While he's up there yelling at me, I'm going to send my troops around the back so that he's completely surrounded. And it says, it says when Abijah realized what was happening, that he was being surrounded, he called out to God and said, now, God, help us now in our time of need. And it said, God, smoked them. So, so much so that there was not enough army left. The king was ran off and killed. Uh, he, was, he wasn't even an heir or right to the throne. He was an advisor that had seated into the hearts of people around him and taken over something. He wasn't even of the line of David. So when they, once they were able to defeat the army, everybody was joined back up under Abijah. Powerful, powerful moment. Uh, a powerful speech, powerful battle. It's inspiring. Press on here. Matthew 1, 8 through 11. 
Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of exile to Babylon. So you thought the last scripture had, last scripture had unfamiliar names, and then we get to this one, right? I mean, this is names now, right? Some of the students are glad that they don't have to read this. Uh, that's when everybody starts buckling up, you know. Yeah, I'll read. Uh, somebody else better read. I don't, those are big words. <laughs> Somebody's glad we came up with names that are very easy. Jim, three letters, easy to say, easy to pronounce, right? So we all know about Jehoshaphat, right? We know that story. I, I've taught on him before. I've talked about him. Jehoshaphat struggled with, this is like, he's like the most American king ever. He struggled with wealth and he struggles with prosperity. He struggled in a sense that when and while he was prosperous, he was often promiscuous. Right? When things are good, I'm out roaming around doing things I probably shouldn't do. And when things are bad, I'm like, please, God, help me. Get me out of this. I need help. I'll repent. I'll never do that again if you will do this. Right? The whole barter game we like to play with God. Jehoshaphat is like us, you know, back in time. He really is. He exemplifies the American culture. I'm rich and wealthy. I have a king. I have a great army, awesome battle. God's an awesome God. Uh, things are awesome for me, and when things are awesome for me, I like to do wicked, evil things, and when things are bad for me, I really want to do good. Really. Trust me, I want to do good, right? This is how he is. This is, this is what he does, right? He like even creates evil alliances, does whatever it takes, thinks it's smart, does things that are just, just, just for his own personal sake. And then what kind of kid does he raise? He raises, here comes Jehoram, and his first act in office, right? Jehoshaphat's son, First act in office is to kill all the other siblings so there's no one that can challenge his authority. Folks, what are we raising? Man, what do our struggles produce? What are, the, what are what is our struggles and, and how we deal with our struggles and how we deal with things? What, a, what kind of offspring do we produce before we judge, right? He kills off all his siblings. I wrote it here in my notes. I don't know why. I said some of you people know people like this. No, maybe you don't. This guy was so evil that the Bible records that when he died, listen, 2 Chronicles 21, Jeroboam was 32, year old, 32 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He passed away to no one's regret. <laughs> They're like, hey, the king died. Thank God. <laughs> We've been praying for that guy's death forever. I mean, that's how they felt, to no one's regret. It says, and was buried in the city of David, but not in the tomb of kings. He wasn't even worthy to be next to David. He wasn't worthy to be next to Jehoshaphat. He wasn't worthy to be next to anybody else. That's about how they felt about it. That's pretty harsh. Uzziah was next in line. And listen, he was only 16 when he became king. I can't even imagine. I can't fathom that. All right? Uh, there are people that struggle uh, with, with following a 60-year-old person, much less a 16-year-old person. All right? And I can't blame them. Because it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to see that, hmm, let's take this 16-year-old. Let's do an experiment. Let's take this 16-year-old. Let's make him a king. Let's give him wealth beyond imagination, and let's place him above the law. What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> Some of you already know, like, man, if I'd have been 16, you gave me unamountable money, and I could never get in trouble. Woo-hoo, I'd already started World War III. 
I'd have just launched the button to see what it could do. I mean, you know, oh, my bad. I'm sorry. I can't get in trouble for it. Uh, you know, I mean, like, think about how a 16-year-old would think. Listen, he was so wicked, God gave him leprosy and killed him. <laughs> There's some awful people. Again, let me just remind you, DNA of Jesus. The next king is Jotham, and he does pretty well. I mean, the people like him. Here's the problem, though. He's not very confrontational. He does that which is right in the eyes of God, yes, but he really doesn't address the people's wickedness either. And you could say, you could say that he just wasn't confrontational, but, but here's the thing. If you don't address the wickedness of your generation, what do you think is coming? What do you think is about to happen? If you're not going to preach on sin, if you're not going to come, I mean, listen, that's what the church is here to do. I, I know, like, you know, I, always t- I used to tell, uh, yeah, I still tell my students, the hardest thing ever in being a Christian is telling someone how wicked they are and turning around and showing them that's love somehow. You know, and listen, parents, you understand this because every time you whip your child, you know you're doing it for what's right. You know you're doing that because you love them and you're trying to teach them the way that is right. But how hard is that as a Christian to verbally go up to somebody, listen, man, you need Jesus. Why do I need Jesus? Because you're wickedly awful, dude. Your heart's nasty. If I could show you how God sees your heart, it'd be black as night. But yeah, we don't say that, but that's the truth, right? I mean, that's what the Bible says. The Bible says you are lost in your own depravity. You are lost in your own darkness and that you need Jesus Christ to be saved. Right? Now, we could say that just like that, but how do we describe that? So we always sound like, to me, like the most awful thing to say that. We always have to convict somebody of their wickedness. I have to somehow show you, pull back the curtains, let the light shine in so you can see the own darkness and depravity of your soul, which is a horrible moment. But on the flip side, it can be the greatest moment of your life because I can also set you free of those things as well, right? Through what? Through Jesus Christ. Not anything else. I'm I'm showing you the way, showing you the way out of the bondage, showing you the way. That's all I can do, but it's very hard to do. And that's what we see in this king right here. Failure to convict, failure to tell people about their depravity, failure to hold people to accountability or be confrontational leads one generation into wickedness and even farther into wickedness. The next generation was King Ahaz, and he was a wicked king and turned everyone towards other gods, but God killed him off rather quickly, and he gave us King Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah was a good man. And he did right what was in the eyes of the Lord. And he reestablished the standards of the church. But unfortunately, it didn't stay that way. Because the son of that, that Hezekiah raises, he's practically the Antichrist. And I ain't kidding. This guy's the worst of the worst in all the kings I've ever read about. And the Bible wouldn't really label him that. I mean, the Bible would probably label like Ahaz, you know, who married uh, um, Jezebel as something like that. But to me, like Manasseh makes Ahaz look like a Boy Scout. I mean, to me, Manasseh is like the worst one. And how do you get, and this is, the, this is really the proof, and I really kind of maybe jumping ahead on my notes here, but this is really the proof. Like, you could do good things, man. And really, you better pray for your children. Because you can be good, and your child cannot be. Your child can have secrets. Listen, I don't know what happened in the life of the child to make it this way. And I know as people, we want to formulate and try to create this um, environment that we think going to raise up our kid, our kid. But I, listen, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if it's that easy. I don't know why some people choose some roads and why some people choose different roads. I, I don't know why that happens. But I see it. It's not just us. <laughs> I see it all over the Bible, too. Here we get, like I said, King Hezekiah, this good guy, and then he has this son named Manasseh. 
And I want to believe a king loves his kid. I want to believe that a guy who does right before the Lord would love his children. But all I know is this King Manasseh, he's a horrible king, and he's probably the most wickedest one. He turned to idol worship and even sacrificed his own children, babies, in the altar fires of false gods. And he declared a move there for a long time where people would bring their first and second born and bring them in and burn babies in the altars. And during his reign, it wasn't anything new to smell the burning of children's flesh in the air. He even carved out an idolatrous image and he nailed it to God's holy temple. I mean, he walked in to where everybody's scared to walk and he took a false idol and he nailed it up there in complete defiance and rebellion against the Lord. I I don't know of anybody that's as bold as he is. Now listen, Manasseh raises up Ammon, of which the Bible says that wickedness increased. How does it get worse? I, I mean, but here's the thing also. Out of nowhere, Manasseh raises up Ammon. Wickedness increased. And from Ammon, an anomaly happens. By the way, anomaly, anomaly is a, a deviation from the common rule, right? So Manasseh having Ammon and wicked increasing, we get that, right? Yeah, I could see how a wicked king has a wicked son. Then tell me, how does from Ammon come Josiah? Three, the third generation of Manasseh is the child king. In men's eyes, eight-year-olds don't make great church leaders. But in God's eyes, an eight-year-old can be dangerous. In God's eyes, eight-year-olds can change nations. Listen, when I read stuff like that, I've got to be honest. I think we're really stupid and naive about our presumptions sometimes. We think a leader has to look this way or that way, that they need to be tall, they need to have gray hair, they need multiple years of experience, blah, blah, blah. God's much bigger than that. God just needs a man or a woman that is sold out to his way, his gospel, and his love. At eight years old, His dad is dead. And someone from the temple opens up the Bible to him. Hey, I found this. Yeah, that's coincidence. Well, then go ahead and read it to him before I go to bed at night. All right. And he starts to read it, and he starts to hear. And what I love is the common sense of an eight-year-old. Well, that's why this place is horrible. Yeah. I can see why we're not being blessed now. Good gracious. Look, we're totally the opposite from everything this book says we're supposed to be. No wonder it's horrible. Well, let's get it done. You know, an eight-year-old has no idea of what those expectations are, what needs to happen. So what does he just say? He really does stamp down the foot of a king and is totally oblivious to what it would take to get it done. Make it so. Right? And guess who's in power now all of a sudden, really? The church. Because these are the people that brought him the light. The church brings him the gospel. They bring him the word, and now there it is. Really, it's the law of Moses being reenacted. And the one thing that the Bible does say about all these kings that are in the process, is that they did what was right in the way of the Lord, but they did not restore the breaches. And basically what he's saying is that even though they did what was right, even though they did things and they said things that were right, there were always little bits that they kind of just ignored. Maybe it was too hard or too difficult. Maybe it was things they just didn't want to step on because it would take confrontation or maybe power that they didn't think that they had. And they didn't want to rough up anything else that was already happening for them. So they never really fully lived in the gospel or fully lived in God's glory. 
Josiah's, he's ignorant to all that stuff. I want it this way now, period. This is the way it is. And the whole culture changes. Everything changes. It says he restored the breaches. He restored the gaps in the wall. He puttied up all the holes so that it would all be back like it was. Can I tell you, one of the great things you heard of the scripture where it says that they didn't bury him in the tomb of kings. By the way, there's only three kings buried in the tomb of kings. No other king ever. There's only three. David, Solomon, and Josiah are the only kings to be buried in the tombs of kings. None of the else were allowed. Listen, Ahaz, they threw off the building and let the dogs eat that joker. They didn't even care about him. Manasseh, they didn't let leprosy. All these other kings, they're just killed. Nobody wants to even be near those guys and touch them. If you got leprosy, you were unclean. Nobody touched you anyway. They probably left his body to be eaten by the buzzards. How about be a king one day, eating with the buzzards the next? God has no respecter of men. Here's the thing, man. We have these ideas of what we think is supposed to be right, who these leaders are supposed to be. And the irony of seeing all the mistakes and mess-ups over the years. So many different men, so many different ideologies, so many wickedness from one generation to the glory of the next. I don't know. I, I do know this, that God looks for men who will be obedient. God looks for men who will be faithful. God looks for men who desire him, who want him, and who will follow him. And he found him in Jesus Christ. These are all the DNA of Christ. The blood that flowed through his veins was the blood of faithful men that at the word of the Lord were prepared to take their own children's life, men that were led by the Spirit to go and to win wars, men of such great wisdom and stature that were respected all over the world. But also, how in this genealogy, we also see that in this same blood of Jesus are baby-killing murderers, adulterers, backslidden sons, and prostitutes. And here's the whole point of what we learned for Christmas. Your past doesn't define your future. For good and bad. There's some wonderful moments in that past lineage right there. But for good or bad, the identity of the genealogy, the identity of these lives, these, these lives that have been lived decade after decade, century after century, do not reflect upon the identity of Jesus Christ. And this morning, it doesn't define you as well. Listen, he might have been birthed into a messy bloodline, but his birth was going to change things. His bloodline might have been messy, but it was about to be clean. God was going to make a way, and he did it in Jesus Christ. Amen? Jesus was not defined by who his earthly father was or the fact that you could tie him to both great and wicked kings. What defined him was his heavenly father. This morning, that is what defines you as well. This is all Jesus needed, and I'm here to tell you this morning, this is all you need. This is all you need. So it's time to grow up a little bit. <laughs> no longer do you get to blame your parents, your grandparents, or whomever for the way you are. You need to let Jesus be your identity. Accept responsibility for who you are. All right? Their lives don't dictate yours. How do you get a Josiah from Ammon? How do you get that? You get that because that doesn't define who you are. You make your own choices. You make your own decisions. You choose who you are. You choose that. And listen, this is something the enemy has always done. 
Why is, why is this chapter so important to precede the birth of Christ? Yes, it's going to relay to the Jews that David, the line of David is coming. We can see in the genealogy where that's going to be laid out. Yes, we can see that he comes from the air and everything, and he meets all the prophecies. But why else also is it before us? It is there as this constant reminder that our identity is found in God the Father. That he has made a way that his promise has come from the beginning till now. He is the promise fulfilled. That's what Christmas is. The promise of what God started all that time ago. And from one generation, no matter how bad it got, God was going to make a way. And listen, there's always the enemy out there trying to question your identity. There's always going to be that voice that's going to try to come at you and question who you are. And you know how I know? Because it's there in the Bible. From the very beginning to the fall, we see the story of Adam and Eve. And in the story of Adam and Eve, we see the, the conversation that takes place between Eve and the devil. And if you remember, he begins to say, listen, if you eat of this fruit, you will become like God. Well, wait a minute, how, how does that work on identity? Because what's wrong with them the way they are? Why do they need to be like God? Why do they need to be like anything else than what God's created them to be? What is wrong with who they are right now? Why do they need to be something more? Why do they need to be God? He begins to question their identity. All of a sudden, uh, you know, this thing that they never thought they ever needed, all of a sudden they really needed. Needed enough to go ahead and take the chance and see what it was like to eat it. You know, it was a void. It was never there until he incited the question. Until he incited the question, that idea of who they were, what they were capable of, and all that, none of that was ever entered into their brain until that first question was asked. And can I tell you, do you think it was any different when the devil met with Jesus? In all the temptation, you know what he's questioning Jesus all the time? Are you the son of God? Because if you're the son of God, you know, you could step off this cliff and nothing would harm you, man. So you got to try it out. Right? The whole time he's trying to get Jesus to question who he is. You see, that's how the devil works a lot. It's not as like we think a lot. We think the devil comes and it's going to be some physical action he's going to do and uh, we're going to break something or our kids are getting hurt. Something. Yeah, yes, that, that's, there's possibly the spiritual realms for those things. But can I tell you, the greatest deceit that the devil ever does is whisper you into your ear and make you question who you are. Because when you start to hear those questions... Am I this? Am I really like this? Am I? That's when we start to get depressed. That's when oppression and depression comes upon us. That's when we start questioning our faith, who we really are. We start questioning our past again. He'll bring all that stuff up. Well, remember, you're, you really were like this at one time. And, God, and it just, that's it. He liked, it's in the form of a question, constantly pounding on you, your identity. Well, remember, you come from a family where um, Jesus, uh, you know, where people killed babies and prostituting and backslidden sons. And you come from all this, Jesus. This is in your bloodline. You are born of a woman. And some of us do the same thing, man. Well, it's in my family. Ten generations ago, they used to be like this, therefore I am. What? You are who you choose to be. Joshua saw it. When they questioned everything about him, what did he say? As for me, we choose God, man. We choose God. As for me and my family, we choose to be with God. We choose to walk with God. We choose to believe in God. We choose to listen to God. We choose to believe that we are His and He is ours. We choose. Christ was born to set you free from all of that mess. <laughs> the bondage of your past. The decisions of your past. I talked with a brother last night, close friend. And uh, just dear to my heart, uh, served in the Marine Corps with him, 
and he's going through a really bitter and ugly divorce right now. And there are things that he did that were made it his fault. And last night as I listened to him, he was like, no, pretty much it's all my fault. I'm a bad dad, a bad husband, bad father, all this other stuff. And I was like, listen, you made mistakes, hands down, and you have to own that one. But none of that means you're bad. You're inherently bad. Listen, that's why Jesus came, bro. All right? You're going to make bad decisions. You're going to make some bad choices. You're going to make some bad things. But listen and understand and know this, that God can redeem all these things. God can redeem all these things. God can help you in all these things. God can help you in all this area. And God can walk you through some of those spots and some of those places where you can really have help and really an area there. So, I mean, as he's listening to me, and I can hear his brokenness. And that's what we do, man. We let our decisions and we let the things that we've already done. Listen, you've already done it. You're already saying you're sorry for it. You're already, like, owning it and admitting it and everything else. So move on. Move on. And praise God that there's no way to stop time. Because if we could, we would stop it and live in it for as long as possible. It's, it's like it's self-medicating to us that we loathe ourselves. So I'm so glad at times that time cannot stop, that we must and are forced to move on. Life happens. It never stops, and so we must move forward, right? And if you're not careful, you'll find yourself wanting to sit in that moment, and that's not godly either. We repent, we bear the consequences of our sin, and then we move forward. Believing in God, that's also in the line of Jesus. At Christmas, we celebrate the sign of liberation. God's freed us from a lot of things. The bright star has brought forth the light and this new identity and this new life for us. That God, God wants to relate to you. God's, God's birth, is, is, he's tried to, um, even in his birth, just always trying to relate to you, always trying to show you that he is one of us. He's born of a woman. He understands the whole birth part. He understands being vulnerable. He understands making himself low. He understands being wealthy as a king, and he understands being impoverished as a human being. One of the neat things about uh, uh, the whole beginning birth story, too, is, you know, God understands what it's like to have a biological mother and a stepdad. He understands what it's like to be both the biological child of a family and also the adopted child of a family. He understands both. Even in the Christmas story, that's what the Christmas story is. This God who makes a way to somehow relate to all of us, that he's not beneath it. He's not beneath it. What did we learn last week? He humbled himself and made himself low so that he could be eye to eye with us. So that we all, And listen, that's not just, oh, his birth or as he walked. That's all of it. Look at his history. Look at his family line. When they sit around and they talk about the old family tree, man, remember this guy in history? Oh, my gosh, we just we want to erase his name right off the tree, right? I mean, if you listen, let's just not lie. We wouldn't even tell people if we had some mass murder, baby-killing guy in our family. We'd be like, I don't know who that guy is. Jesus owns all of it. They're all my children. They're all my children. Like we discussed last week, God shows you a couple thousand years of depraved hearts to set up the coming arrival of his son. He, I mean, there's no, you, you don't get to go back and go, well, it's, we were only this way for this amount of time. No, the majority of the Bible in timeline, the majority of the Bible is us living depraved and in darkness. The New Testament is a small little story. It's a small little sliver compared to the Old Testament of how free we are 
And it's almost like a, a, the greatest thing about the Bible is this just really feel-good story, even all the way to the end. We win in the end. Everything is great. And there's this, it's this tiny sliver, really, in the New Testament, such a tiny sliver of the Bible. Why? Because it's meant to be lived right now. Because we're still writing it. Because God's church still exists. We are the church. We still exist. We're still here today testifying in the goodness and greatness of God, delivering people, taking people like uh, Peter, who is, you know, talks too much, got a little bit of a mouth on him, struggles a little bit pro- profanity, and, you know, is still kind of violent. You know, I mean, we see him cutting off ears even at the back end of Jesus' ministry. This is like three years in. It's not like the first year. Like first year, you'd be like, well, it was my first year, Jesus. I was just barely safe. Three years in of hanging out with Jesus, you should not be cutting people's ears off. Remember, he gets on to him, Peter. And I love how with Peter, the great thing about Jesus, and you know this too, this is why it's great. Jesus didn't have to say much, and you know it. He just says your name, and you're like, oh. You feel the weight, right? It's the glory of God, amen? Stand up. Stand to your feet. Man, I, I hope, I really hope you're getting something out of this. And these are just little, I, I know it's a different way or a different way to approach Christmas, and, and I am going to eventually talk about something probably more traditional, but there's so many things we miss every year. There's so many things that we fail to see that I think could give us this great full picture. It's like looking at a painting, and, and while the very centerpiece is the thing you look at, sometimes you fail to see the glory and all the details. The type of brush that was used, the type of stroke that was used, the color, how they had to layer on one color before another, and you can fail to appreciate it. You just look at the final and go, it's wonderful. And it is. But this painting has been being painted for a while. You gotta, like, how many times had God colored over one color over another so he could get just the right contrast? Listen, you can't just take orange and red and, and draw in a sunset. There's so much color layered in on one on top of another. And you've seen, if you've seen an artist really paint a sunset or something like that, you know that they'll, they'll wash a whole board with one color and then maybe hit it with a second color. And they might add a third color and then wash it out so they can see through it a little bit. Like there's so much that goes on to the great painting sometimes. This is the way the Lord works. He's layering it in from the Old Testament to the birth. It's all there. It's all the Christmas story. I am going, I have a promise that I've made you. I will deliver you. I will send my son who will deliver you. He will do this. It, is, it rings true. And just the fruit of the very seed is thrown to the earth in the Christmas story. And that's just the beginning. It's just that Christmas is just the beginning. Because the great story is how he lived, how he would ultimately die and be resurrected. Wonderful, wonderful finish. It's, it's the it's the grand moment of God. Amen. I'm going to pray, but I also want to pray uh, this morning for those. Listen, this is a, a tough subject because as we talk about identity and as we talk about these things, everybody struggles some, some, to some degree with some things like that. And so if you want prayer this morning, maybe, you, maybe some things uh, that just you, you just you feel like you can't get free from or, uh, you know, you, you hear that uh, small voice where the devil just plagues you sometimes. Well, maybe you're this or maybe you're that, da 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 and always has you questioning. You know, listen, I can't make those things shut off. What I can do is pray with you and intercede on your behalf that, that God will step in, that you will begin to push and press through these things and grab hold of the Lord and, and, and feel the freedom that he has for you in that area. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to give a moment for prayer. And uh, uh, if, if you don't come up, that's okay, but I might ask some of you to come up and pray with some people. So let's pray. Father.
Lord, who is like you? Who is like you, God? Who is quick to love, quick to uh, behold us, God, and care for us, God? Who speaks life over us, God? Who cares for us like you do, Lord? You are wonderful, God, and your ways are true, Father. Lord, open our hearts today to hear the message that you had for us, Lord, that our identity is found in you. It's not in what somebody else has done through our past, God. It's not even what our past mistakes have been, God. It's who we are right now in you. Lord, it's choosing to look at you, choosing to behold you so that we might become like you, God. Father, help us this morning to make that choice, God. Father, this morning, if there are some here, God, that are struggling in that choice, God, constantly of getting up in the morning and saying, God, I choose you. I want to behold you so that I might become you, God. Father, I ask that you would just bring them up, God, and let us and allow us, God, the opportunity and the privilege it is to serve your people. If that's you this morning, maybe your past wants to just heap coals upon you or you feel like that, man, feel free to come and let us pray for you. God has freedom for those who seek Him. Thank you, Jesus. Father, you are a faithful God. Thank you, Lord. You are a faithful God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Can I get just a few of you right now? If you'll just come up here and help me pray.
as we close out here. You know, this song right here, it says, I'm no longer a slave. Father, we recognize this morning that there are no slaves here. Only the children of you. No slaves here, only sons and daughters. And Lord, in your desire to be with them this morning, your desire to love us and to meet us right where we're at, God. And Father, we're not perfect, and yet you still love us. You tell us that you are pleased with us. You grant us mercy and grace and peace and forgiveness, God. And we stand in awe sometimes, God. We don't know how to act about it, God, sometimes. But Father, you accept us. And this Christmas, God, may we feel, may we feel, may we know, may we tangibly know, God, the greatness of your birth, the greatness of the coming of your promise, God. May we know this, God, in our heart and be convicted about it in our life so that we produce the fruit, produce the fruit of salvation. Father, bless them as they go out this week. May they be the light and salt to everyone they meet, God. In Jesus' name. And everyone says amen.